Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope the Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And the Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash theringer. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use the music in the introduction. We've been changing up the format quite a bit. Obviously, quarantine has affected how not just our production of the show goes, but just about everything. But it hasn't hindered us from creating content. We've just been experimenting. And one of the things that I mentioned we want to do more of is to have one sort of solo podcast a week, and then trying to figure out how we can talk about the coronavirus epidemic and its effect on the restaurant business and small business at large. And I think we're going to incorporate it in a, at least a weekly podcast, address it at least once a week. And we're going to, I don't know if it'll be a spinoff, but I think to start, it'll be on the Dave Chang Show feed and it will be called too small to fail. And it was something that I came up with on a tweet to our congressional leaders in New York State and our governor and our mayor, simply asking for help for a stimulus bill and the fact that it was a little too late already. And I think by telling stories of different chefs and maybe farmers, artisans, distributors, various people in the supply chain of all businesses, maybe the best thing we can do is share these stories of individuals going through this struggle and we can cobble together a better narrative about what needs to happen and what they've been going through, their perspective, and not just the well-known names, the people that you may never have heard of to begin with because their voices are equally as important as everyone else's. And we're going to try to do that. So I think we're going to up our frequency quite a bit. One for sure will just be me rambling. One will probably be something fun. We need some levity and some laughter. And uh, we'll have some podcast about being a dad, about bad movies and the such. But I think the podcast that will be the most frequent will be the Too Small to Fail. So if you have something to say, please email us at askdave at majordomamedia.com. We have a list of guests that we have already assembled and reaching out to and uh, trying to figure out how to communicate on a podcast when a lot, not everyone has the right equipment. So sometimes the audio may not be great, but I think the message is great. And we want to be uplifting in this time and, and share stories. And I think it's important to talk about the hardships and not sort of shy away from what is really probably the most difficult period for anyone in this business. And, you know, understand the priorities, right? So, you know, food is not important in a restaurant setting right now. The frontline health workers, the doctors, the nurses, the ENT, they need the most support first and foremost. And then it's all the hourly employees and that are out of work. But I want to do this too small to fail to talk about that rebuild and to analyze what happened so we never have to experience it again. We can learn from our mistakes. 
So I'm feeling upbeat about doing it. I think it's going to be difficult, but you know, it's going to be great as well. We are going to release our first one today, our Too Small to Fail series with Chef Corey Lee of Bennu. He is one of the best chefs in the world, a close friend of mine and Chris Yings, who joined me on the podcast. And um, he was dropping some real wisdom and um, it did have some real funny moments. And I'll, I'll let you listen to that in a little bit, especially when you realize that Corey Lee, a chef of his caliber, has never really cooked at home. And, um, you know, I, I think that is truly one of the best things about what's happening right now is rediscovering what's important in cooking and thinking about things because we have the time to think about things in different ways. And uh, I think Corey articulates very clearly what sort of that, I wouldn't say epiphany, but that realization is all about for a lot of professional chefs. Um, I wanted to give you a couple of things about cooking at home. I have been making a lot of crepes and I want to give you that recipe. I don't know if I've given it to you before or maybe online. I don't follow any recipe on crepes. It's just something I remember from culinary school back from 2000, 2001. And it's basically like one cup flour to one egg and like a cup of milk, salt and and sugar, if you choose, and uh, some butter or olive oil. And I've been making a lot because it's something that I can make a batch in the beginning of the week. And it allows me to make food for the six people in the house. So some people want something sweet for breakfast. Some people want something savory for breakfast. And oftentimes Hugo, who doesn't want to eat oatmeal anymore, and yogurt has been very hard to find. And I have never made yogurt at home. And I am, uh, <laughs> I'm nervous about it just as anyone else would be. And I think I might have to try it. Um, he loves these crepes. If I just cook a crepe, with no, no filling, and I just give it to him for breakfast and a soft or medium boiled egg. He loves it. So these are the kinds of recipes that I've been trying to sort of formulate that gives me the versatility that's not really hard to do. And um, I've done it in a variety of different ways. And I have a nonstick skillet, a Teflon pan, and I don't worry about getting the lumps out of the batter I don't have an immersion blender. If I did, I'd probably use that, but I'm not sifting the flour. So this is the beauty of home cooking. I can just sort of put the flour in, crack an egg, melt some butter, add some olive oil, and just whisk it in with some milk. And if I need, I'll add a little water to thin it out. And I'll make a, you know, pour a ladle full. And then in a hot pan, I sort of swirl it around, make sure the, the sides of the pan get coated. And if there's any leftover, I pour it out. And I just want to get a thin layer. And no, it's not perfect. And it's not something I would ever serve as a restaurant quality for someone paying for a meal per se, but it works. And, um, you know, what I've learned is like, I love milfui. I love milfui cakes, most probably popularized by the bakery Lady M in New York, where they do a crepe and a layer of cream and another crepe. And you have probably a layer of like 50 to 100 layers of cream and, and crepe. And it's delicious. And I just think it's really elegant and light and luxurious and one of my favorite desserts to eat and incredibly simple to make if you can have like an even hand filling out the pastry on the crepe. Anyway, I was thinking like, maybe there's other ways I could do it. I don't have the best dexterity these days. 
So like, could I put a layer in a crepe and then like cook it and then put a filling and then put a layer and then sort of cover it and then flip the pan. So I have the crepe on the other side. And then I'm just like, sort of like tossing the pan with crepes. And I'm basically like layering the crepe constantly with filling in between. It actually works. And I was putting freeze-dried strawberries and drizzling butter and then layering a crepe and then covering it with another batter of layer of batter and then cooking that and then flipping it and getting color on the other side and just constantly doing that. And I was just fucking around and it actually worked. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't nearly something I would ever want to sell in a bakery. And I'm sure a baker would be like, holy shit, what are you making? But it like, it worked. Anyway, I haven't done it since because it took too much time. And uh, there's a cake in uh, Austria or Germany. And I can't remember. It's called basically translates to spit cake. And you start off and you start layering a rotisserie over a fire or a flame. And you start layering the batter over the spit. And you start getting a log of cake that rolls, that's like constantly baking as it rolls over the oven like a chicken would. And it's delicious, but also incredibly time-consuming. And truthfully, I've never seen it in Europe. I've only had it in Japan because only I think the Japanese are industrious and crazy enough to make such things. And incredibly time-consuming and super delicious. So I was like, man, maybe there's other ways to screw around with making a crepe. So I take the crepe batter and I'll just constantly, instead of putting another layer of like filling, I just add three or four layers of crepe. So I'll cook it and I'll get it super crispy. And then I'll put another layer on top and then I'll flip it and then I'll get it super crispy. And then on the other side, the crispy side facing up, I'll put another layer of batter, spoon it around and like cook it and then flip it. And then I have what is essentially like a three to five layer crepe that's like really crunchy. Because if you cook it long enough, you're going to cook out most of the water and effectively you almost get like a tortilla. And it's great. And sometimes I even have baking soda and baking powder, like make it puffy, not like a Dutch baby pancake, but it works. And I know I'm explaining a recipe over audio, but it's something I want to test out. I'd love for anyone listening to give it a shot, to try it out, and to tag your result on Dave Chang's show at Instagram, at Dave Chang Show on Instagram, and see what you get. I'd love to see, because if this works, this is something we're going to do a lot more of. So in the mornings when I make this, I'll make a single one for Hugo, or sometimes I'll put some Parmesan and some spinach. Like I'll chiffon out some spinach and I'll roll it up and he doesn't get a crispy one. This morning, my in-laws wanted something sweet. They like sweet for breakfast. And I chopped up some apples, melted some butter, put some sugar on, confectioner sugar, because we don't have regular sugar, and some cinnamon. And I basically made like a tart to tan in the morning for them. And it was really good. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it it gets a little bit soggy in the middle if, if your apples are a little bit too wet, but it's fine. It's like you get the best of both worlds in some ways. Like the outer edge of the crepe gets really crispy and crunchy, and you get like actual toothsome like texture when you crack into the apple. And then in the middle, it's almost like a soggy pancake, which I also love. I don't know if everyone else does when you eat towards the center of the plate. And um, my wife, she likes savory. Really, she would prefer to eat fried rice every morning. And I'll take some cheese, whatever I have on hand, whether it's pepper jack, American cheese, and 
I'll add that with maybe some potato scraps or whatever meats we have on hand, bacon, whatever. And uh, it's almost like a breakfast burrito. And it's great. It's actually probably one of my favorite things to make. And, uh, you know, a couple months back, I think I posted a video of making huevos rancheros for her that way. I made a salsa from canned tomatoes. I had some frozen cilantro stems, some onions, and um, I added some coriander, a little bit of cumin, and it tasted great. I can't remember what else I put in there. Maybe some vinegar. And I had a can of refried beans. And I, um, so this is the recipe. I made the crepe batter. I did about three or four layers of the crepe itself without anything else. And then I added two eggs baked into it. And then I just let it cook. I don't recall if I covered it or not, but I'm pretty sure I didn't because I was just waiting, cooking it slowly over flame to get the bottom crispy and the eggs cooked. And then I added the refried beans, the salsa, and some cheese, and I sliced some avocado. And um, I don't know, again, what the fuck I made, but it was really delicious and um, simple. So, like, it can go a variety of ways. I also make it for lunch. I always have a core container of uh, this crepe batter on hand, and it freezes really well as well. So for lunch, oftentimes I'm just going to make like a, a turkey cheese sandwich and I'll mix some mayonnaise and mustard and I'll sort of slather it on the crepe in the pan as it's cooking. And then I'll layer the cheese and the ham or the turkey. And uh, I just like flip off over the half and it's like a, almost like a traditional crepe with a meat and cheese in it. And it's an easy, easy lunch. So, you know, we've screwed around with crepes a lot over the years. Even at Noodle Bar, we had the, the fried chicken dinner with crepes, and we do have that in Las Vegas as well. So there's a lot more versatility to a crepe than meets the eye. I highly encourage you guys to screw around with making crepes. You know, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be like a crepe shop, but I like it because it doesn't take that much space. You can pre-batch it, and uh, man, there's so many different ways you can make this both sweet and savory. So check it out. Screw around with it. Send us your recipes. I want to see if this audio recipe thing works at askdave at majordomamedia.com or tag us on a photo you take on social media at Dave Chang Show. And uh, that's my recipe for the day. Um, I want to get into this podcast with Corey Lee. I thought it worked too small to fail with Corey Lee. It was a lot of fun talking to our good friend and we wish him the best and everybody stay safe. We're going to get through this. Love you guys. Corey, how are you doing, man? How's, how's the last couple of weeks been and how's it all played out for you? It's been kind of brutal, you know, to be honest. Um, I mean, this is really surreal. Like, I couldn't imagine something like this ever happening. And I've been in this industry, you know, this is basically 25 years in this industry. So I've been through some stuff, you know, September 11th, you know, I was in New York then. So I saw that whole thing go down, the financial crisis. We opened basically right around that time. So, you know, I've seen some bad things for our industry, but this is on a different scale. This is just something, something beyond that. You know, and it's a global thing. Um, and, and, and what it's going to look like a week from now or, you know, three months from now or two years from now, I really have no idea. And I think we have to get comfortable with the fact that we can't predict what's going to happen and we just have to be kind of you know, aware and adaptable. What do you think with, I'm not trying to justify my position, but you know, some of the people that I've been speaking to, they're just like, we know you're the doom and gloom scenario. So it's not like we need to talk to you too much about this. 
Um, but I think that's maybe the problem is we need, we're sort of in this mess right now because we did not plan out for worst case scenario. And I would rather have the worst case scenario plotted out and prepared for to the best of our abilities and hope that we never have to even go down that road. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think in any industry, like just having a contingency plan is, you know, is important, but we really didn't have any for something like this, you no. know, and, and there are a lot of industries, not just ours, who are suffering so much because they haven't planned. I mean, as a nation, we haven't really properly planned, right? So I, I think this is just really widespread, you know. You know, just to go deep into it, what are your thoughts about where do you think it's going to go? Well, I think it's going to last for a long time. And, uh, you know, the shelter-in-place orders everywhere, you know, um, that'll soften at some point. But, you know, what people's dining habits will be like when this is all over is unknown. And the really scary thing, like I brought up September 11th and the financial crisis before, but, you know, during September 11th, if you're in New York and, like, you went out and you went to a restaurant or a bar, there was, like, this palpable sense of community that, that was there, right? Like, you want to gather with your friends. The first thing you want to do was go out and, and, and try to find some reason to celebrate and come together. In this crisis, you can't even do that. And that's what's really scary is what is it going to look like after? You know, how are people going to interact with each other? How are people going to dine? I mean, wh- you know, what's going to happen? What does a restaurant look like post, you know, coronavirus or COVID-19? And, and, and that I, I, just, I just don't know yet. What do you think are your worst case scenarios on that though? I mean, I think the worst case scenario is that, oh, well, I think it's already a given that we're going to lose a lot of restaurants. Um, I don't think the dining landscape is going to look like anything we recognize, um, you know, before this whole thing struck. Um, I think that there'll be some serious restrictions on capacity that's going to affect so many business models that we're used to. Um, the public health measures um, will be will be so rigid that we're going to have a hard time as an industry adapting quickly to something like that. And a lot of these restaurants that were barely getting by, um, it's just impossible for them to make it. You know, so there's a lot of talk of whatever funds and stimulus and loans and all that. And all that is important and all that is necessary and it's great. But that will not allow us to continue to be successful given the climate that, that we're going to find ourselves in after. I completely agree. And I think that's what I've been trying to get to where it's not an emotional thing where I'm just depressed about it. Because I, I feel pretty confident that everything you said on worst case scenario is going to happen and probably a bit worse. And I want to be wrong about that, but I was just thinking about the mechanics of a service, right? Whether it's your restaurant or, you know, a restaurant of a certain caliber where you're tasting food all the time. How are you supposed to do that with masks? It literally defeats the purpose of a mask and how we have set up our kitchens to run. And the only other places that I think can sort of not miss a beat would be like a Taco Bell where literally you're never touching the food. So that, I'm just trying to define this equation on the extremes. And if on the highest end level restaurants such as Bennu can't operate with a mask in the way that they used to, that gives me great pause as to how anything can happen, especially like a sommelier. How are you supposed to do these things? Taste wines. And I've just come to the conclusion, as depressing as it is, is until there's a pot, like a powerful therapeutic or a vaccine, 
the business as we know it will not be the same. And it's probably not going to be the same until like after there's a therapeutic or vaccine too, because as you said, so many businesses are just going to be like, they're just going to disintegrate. And what do you think that future looks like in the event that many businesses die out, not just restaurants, but what do you think the food looks like post-vaccine? Well, I think it looks for sure pretty different than, than the way it looks now. And, um, you know, as a chef, that's kind of scary uh, to think about, you know, what, what that really will be. Because I think at the heart of really good cooking is the ability to kind of like connect with it physically and emotionally as you're cooking this food, tasting all the time and using all your senses. And, and basically, you know, what's going on right now is we almost have to separate ourselves as much as we can. Uh, and, you know, I think that's going to be a, 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 a different kind of hurdle. We're going to have to relearn our craft in some way. I, you know, I'm kind of hopeful that we're, we're, we have limitations already. We might not even be aware of them because we were born into cooking with limitations for whatever it may be. And we found a way to make food taste better over years and decades and centuries and generations. Um, and, and I'm optimistic that regardless of the restrictions that are in place when we reopen, it might, it might not be what we want when it first opened and what we remember, but you know, hopefully over time, it will, we'll find a way through creativity and ingenuity to, to, to make it better. Um, you know, as I say that, and that sounds pretty optimistic, you know, I, you know, I also acknowledge the fact that it's going to be a, a pretty sad departure from the way it looks now. And, and, that, and that's really unfortunate. Um, I mean, I've been cooking at home for the first time like, in my <laughs> life, you know, and, uh, and I'm thinking about like what I'm cooking and how I'm cooking. And I'm tuned into that in a very different way. Like I find myself tasting things and, and being like, wait, how is that going to happen in this restaurant? After right. this is all over, how am I going to even serve this properly at the ideal temperature and time and, and all those things? And, and I really don't know the answer to that. And, and you know, I think we have to look to, to experts to see what is a, a reasonable uh, public risk uh, in terms of you know, safety and, and public health. Um, and, and we're just going to have to take this kind of one step at a time. I don't think we can predict what's going to happen. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that exactly when you say... You're cooking at home now and thinking about how this is going to work in the restaurant. Can you give me an example of what that means? Sure. Just like, um, you know, let's say like uh, you're, you're, you're feeling temperatures for meats or you're tasting things during the cooking process. Um, obviously, there's some, there's some health measures in place already, but I think, um, you know, we're, it's going to go to a whole new level. So if you, if you think about how you cook the most basic thing, I mean, you're seasoning with, with your hands, how, how you season... Um, you know, you're used to the way it feels in your fingertips. You know, you can't season with a glove on properly because you're not used to it. Little things like that that we take for granted and are part of our, you know, you know, kind of um, reflexes as a cook. A lot of those things aren't going to be acceptable, I think, when 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 you know restaurants start to open up or you know when everything settles and we really start to come up with protocols for how restaurants can operate. Um, and we're going to have to learn um, how to cook in a professional environment again, essentially. Um, you know, and obviously we're in that generation where we know what it was like before. And so it's going to be a huge adjustment for us. But, you know, as I was saying before, I think, you know, even for us, we were born into a world with certain limitations, physical limitations, whatever it may, may be. That's probably different from, you know, how people were cooking a uh, you know, hundred years ago. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I think that 
you know, for us to to sit around and try to predict what's going to happen. Yeah, it's nice to have like a backup plan or an emergency plan, like Dave was saying. But I just don't. I I personally don't know really what that's going to look like. I've been given some thought, and it's weird. Is I actually feel like it's going to be like New York City, like 1990, 1991, what food looked like then. Uh, and not in terms of the types of restaurants, but what was available, you know, mm. uh, and just, it's going to be a, an incredibly limited selection of what you're allowed to do. And I continue to think that, you know, having spent time in a Domino's kitchen, you know, their, sa- their salads are not touched by human hands ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if things return to New York City food in the early '90s, like I'd be pretty happy about that, to be honest with you. Like, because because <laughs> because at least there were like, you know, this great ethnic food. There was like, you know, good good Chinese food in Queens. There were like still like those kind of restaurants, right? I feel like I'm, my my worst case scenario is everything suddenly being like like airline food. You know, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, where yeah. there's like a it's there's a has to plan for everything, and you yeah. almost. You, you, it's 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 that's that's my biggest fear is that's what cooking is going to be at a professional level, um, and I think if you asked all the chefs you know that are working today like is this the profession you imagine when you when you entered it, <laughs> everyone's going to say no. I mean how how are you going to make sushi? You know they wanted to have sushi chefs wear gloves forever. Yeah. Now, I mean, how are they going to feel the temperature of the rice? That's going to be an impossibility. So. Um, you know, these are real problems. And unfortunately, I like thinking about these depressing things because I don't think anyone else really is. And I want us to be prepared. I, if no one else wants to think about these horrible things, I'm happy to do it because what else I got to do? But Well, let me, let me um, ask you this. I mean, if you came into my restaurant right now, today, would you be comfortable eating there? With you? Yeah. And the team? Yeah. 100%. Well, see, I think I think that's really what's going to come down to at some point. You know, um, what is everyone's appetite for for risk? But Corey, I don't think people understand. You know, there are people in the industry that understand, but your professionalism and the exactitude and finesse and all the technical aspects of cooking that you sort of you know exude—that's what gives me comfort. Is that we're going to need that? But I I can't say the same for many chefs that I would feel comfortable doing. You know what I mean? Like, I think the question back to Chang is really like, other than Corey, <laughs> how many other chefs on earth would you feel comfortable walking to their restaurant right now? It's it's a very small number. Well, you know, the scary thing about this thing is like, okay, well, you know, we're also talking about like the guests that are next to you, right? We're talking about the service, mm-hmm. the wait staff. You know, what does that look like? You know, I mean, even right. something as simple as like I- buffing glasses. You know, I've I've been thinking about this scenario because I just saw the Kirby enthusiasm uh, enthusiasm episode where you know the server you know said she has diarrhea and everyone's like, oh, I don't know if I want to eat here. But imagine if a server actually had something stuck in their throat and they coughed in the dining room. Yeah, you know, once you remove the hospitality and the the comfort that you need to be in a place of comfort for you know sommelier to do their job to do the whole aspects of front of the house service. If the server sort of puts the diner in a place where they have to think outside themselves mm-hmm. and and not be in the restaurant and they're not at ease, our entire sort of fine dining paradigm is built on that, putting the customer at ease. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a simple cough can throw that off completely. And that's that's just what I'm thinking about all the time. How do you 
How do you mitigate that? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that like, maybe, I mean, Dave and I are the same age. Chris is a few years younger, so. But he looks way older. He looks way fucking older. Than both of us. (laughs) I feel feel (laughs) twice as old as both of you combined, so. But, but, you know, like, I, I mean, I was old enough when like, when HIV first broke out, like, you know, in, in the mainstream media. And there was so much confusion around like, well, what, you know, what was happening and, and, and how, was, how, how you could contract HIV. And, and I think there's a lot of that, you know, happening today, even if it's 40 years later, there's still a lot of like miscommunication um, from not only from leadership, from experts, you know, and I don't think we know everything about this virus. And I think we're going to mm-hmm. know a lot more in the future. Um, but right now, like, yeah, you're right. If someone coughs or someone, you know, has a little sniffle or someone looks like they have a cold, like, you know, the first thing you think about is, wow, is that, is that, does that person have, you know, you know, this virus? Um, and there was, there was that kind of anxiety and that fear, um, when HIV, you know, first broke out, you know, people were talking about mosquitoes and things like that. It, it was, it was, it was very similar. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, hopeful that we're going to learn a lot more and a lot quicker than it took us during that crisis. Um, and, and hopefully we'll be able to approach this with you know, intelligence and science and, and have a better understanding of it very soon. But let's assume that we get rapid testing and we find a way to work through this. Yeah. Right. And I believe that we will. And we should talk about what we want to get rid of and from the, from the old regime of cooking, because this is going to be able to, we're going to be able to start cooking from like, year one, all over again in so many different ways. But do you think that, I don't even know how to phrase this. Do you think that the restaurants that survive, and it's not even the restaurants that survive, but by the time we can reopen up, the dining habits will have changed so dramatically that restaurants may be a relic of the past in some ways. I'm not, they're always going to exist, but the desire to have as many as we've had and the diversity, I feel, is going to be lost. I think definitely in the quantity, but I don't think in, in what we're offering at our, at, you know, the product that we're offering um, at its core, I think will be the same. That might look a little different. That might, you know, it might be served in a room that's different. It might be delivered a little bit differently. But I think the product that we're offering and the product that people are looking for will, will essentially be the same. Um, and, and, you know, and that's just about being human because so much of what we do is, 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 is tied to that. Um, but what the model of the industry looks like, I think that will be completely different. I think it's going to be all delivery. I think 90, it's just going to be overwhelming majority of ghost kitchens and delivery. Really? And yeah, I really do. Unfortunately, in our entire model right now, you know, I have no doubt when things get back online, they're going to go to what Hong Kong and to some extent China, but certainly Hong Kong where it's mandated at 50% occupancy, which is a death sentence anyway. Yeah. You know, like Noodle Bar, for instance, we're doing anywhere from 300 to 500 covers, right? Um, our, our rent and all of our fixed costs are set for a certain amount of sales per day. Like we can't do... We can't do $20,000 out of delivery. Maybe yeah. we can, but that's going to be really hard to do. So I think footprints are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And there will certainly be restaurants that do extraordinary things, but they're going to, when I mean go back to the early 90s, it's going to be a handful of places that are doing something tremendous. And 
it's a reset. So I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around if food goes to delivery and takeout, you know, it makes me bummed. It's really bumming me out. I mean, I mean that, that, would, that would be a terrible situation. But here's the thing, like, you know, I think people are always going to want to dine together, right? Um, and it's not just people in your household. So where does that happen? Do you go to a, like your, uh, you know, a new friend's house and expose yourself there? Or do you go to a public restaurant that's, that has certain protocols and, and they have, um, you know, certain criteria that they need to meet to operate? And where do you feel safer? And I think it's going to be a restaurant for a lot of people. It's just that the cost of doing business in a restaurant is going to skyrocket because of occupancy and all these new um, protocols that you're going to have to follow. So I think it's definitely going to change the economics of what, what, you know, a dining experience is. Um, I was try- I was trying to calculate the cost for for the restaurants and, and masks. And currently, if you could get masks, they're going to be at like a a pretty let's just say like a surgeon's mask is about a dollar right now. I think if you bought it from China, and not that you can, but let's just say you could, because all masks should be going to the frontline healthcare workers. You know, you're looking at for a restaurant for a year, probably like on our for our restaurant group, it's like something like a million point five if people are using like cooks are using like two masks a day. That's, again, those are ballpark numbers for like one year. But if you, how do you, how do you operate with that added fixed cost, uh, you know, per year? It's unbelievable. I don't know how we're going to make that work. So I think the government has to subsidize. We're going to have to get subsidized masks and and all this kind of equipment that we just don't have. Yeah, I mean, that's a crazy calculation. I mean, you just been doing this on your own or <laughs> what, yeah. what else yeah, you got? Yeah. I, I have because, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to get ready for is, you know, again, I'm, I'm doom and gloom for sure because I want to be ready. But also I'm calculating, you know, the facts. Okay, if we have to be open by June 30th, we're certainly going to have masks. What, you know, how many do we need? How many gloves do we need? What is that going to cost us? Can we even afford that right now? And these are the sort of, you know, fixed variables that we're trying to sort out right now. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's it's making me realize that I think that how we do business, you know, up until COVID-19, that's going to be in the Smithsonian, uh, you know, in 20 years as something we look back to as like, wow, that that was, that was, that was like the... <laughs> The real glory days. I mean, give me, a, give, give me an example of that. Like, and is that how you really feel? I feel, I feel, I feel like we were headed toward this direction anyway, over a 10 to 15 year period. I felt the growth of a growth in our restaurant business was not going to happen with the four walls of a restaurant. You know, it's one of the reasons why I started two businesses to see if we could, you know, get some alignment with independent restaurants be fully stacked and figure out what delivers well and what doesn't. I think that, you know, ghost kitchens and cloud kitchens and all these things probably were going to fail uh, pre-COVID-19. Now, post-COVID-19, they're going to ramp up. And I think the government's going to have to regulate these businesses because it's going to be a big one. Um, And you're going to be able to figure out when you say about HACCP, like, Airline food, yeah, I think that's going to be it because that's exactly what you know a lot of the fast food restaurants are right now. No one really cooks anything; it's just sort of assembled. And we're going to have to figure out how to do that. And unfortunately, the best food under those circumstances are food that gets delivered really well, like pizza, Domino's pizza, Papa John's pizza. 
right? These things are like perfectly suited for this new world. And that bums the shit out of me, you know? Um, and I'm trying to calculate, okay, if we open up and we need 30,000 masks, well, how many, I've been trying to calculate in a service, like depending on the restaurants, like, okay, if we're at Co, how many masks are you going to need per day? Four, seven. I mean, we, we sort of been playing out these numbers and I don't, I don't know, but I'm not, I don't want to be surprised for any outcome anymore. And that's what, unfortunately, I've been spending a lot of time doing is trying to figure out what are things that might be possible scenarios in the event that we can reopen up in the miracle chance that we find some godsend therapeutic, right? Because the day there's a vaccine that says it's been approved by the FDA and will be released in a, you know, whatever amount of time, people are going to go out. <laughs> you know, that's when restaurants are going to go back. But my concern is between now and, and then that Delta is going to do such damage to our profession that we're not, you, you mentioned it, we're not going to have a supply chain to go back to. Everything that we've all worked so hard to, to get to this point isn't going to exist for us to go back to. And just think about this in, in a variety of ways. Just think about food criticism. Do you think anyone's going to even want to write about food restaurants? And like, how important is the Michelin guy in the top 50 now? Who gives a shit about that? So the entire ecosystem is going to devolve and I don't know what it is. But if anything has been shown to be true, in my opinion, as sad as it is, people will have lived and survived this epidemic and they will have done it without going to restaurants. So it's like, wait, do we even need it? I think home cooking is going to be at the forefront. We're going to find ways to commune over food for sure. But I'm trying to figure out what kind of restaurant that's going to be. And I'm spending a lot of time trying to think about that. And it's bringing me down a lot, but I'm not going to stop thinking about it because there's, there's a fucking solution. There absolutely is a solution. Well, what's your opinion on, you know, like, like SARS, for example, and like the dining scene in Hong Kong and how, how that was able to yeah. Well, I think about Din, I think about Din Tai Fung. Yeah. Right. If you go to Din Tai Fung, everyone wears gloves. Everyone wears masks. I was in Shenzhen in 2003, and we didn't even know what was happening. And I was quarantined. I got my temperature taken at Dallas Airport when I got off the plane because, like, that's one of the reasons we left. And the reason why I believe that Hong Kong is so well prepared for this is because they were so scarred from SARS. And you know, if you go to Japan right now. Again, I don't know. I'm not a virologist or whatever these scientists are called. But if you go throughout Asia, but particularly in Japan, I would say 20%, 30% of the population just walking throughout the city, they're wearing masks to begin with. It wasn't, it wasn't new for them to wear masks. In Korea, you see the same thing. Wearing masks in Asia, not a big deal. Wearing masks in America, no one had ever done anything like that. So yeah, I think SARS gave them a head start to be prepared for this. I mean, even if you think about like reading about Wuhan and the, the hospitals in China, they already had fever tents from SARS. They knew that, hey, you can't, you can't mix people that have some kind of coronavirus epidemic, like, like virus with people that might just have, you know, a common flu. You have to sort out that stuff. Like that's already been built in to the, the country's psyche. We don't have that. And I think, you know, first things first, 
we need to get healthy. We need to get our, our, our entire government in order and aligned to combat this so it never happens again. But when it's all said and done, how important are restaurants truly? And it's, it makes me really appreciate what we've had, that it was not just decadence isn't the right word, but it was a true freedom to express yourself in a variety of ways. And I think we're going to lose that. And, 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 and again, like, I know I sound like I'm bumming everyone out, including myself, but I, I almost have to like meditate on this because there's a solution because I don't want to live in that world. Absolutely. I don't. Well, what do you think about, you know, Asia's ability to kind of come back from these, these things like, you know, Hong Kong was able to rebound from, from SARS, you know, what mm-hmm. is it about that, that area or that culture that, that's different from how, you know, your prediction of what's going to happen here? I've actually been thinking about that too. It's like, is there something about Confucian values that allows us, that allows Asia to, to, to mitigate, you know, this kind of trauma, you know, like maybe there is, again, I'm not an anthropologist, sociologist, but it's like, what is it about Asian cultures that are are like, yeah, we got this. Like Koreans, like I 100% believe that Korea and their ability to just flatten the curve is, is Han. Yeah, I mean, you know, fuck this. Well, I think I think Korea is an interesting place because it was a place that was, you know, there was a dictatorship, all all the men serving armies, and with whatever it is, when it's time for like the nation to get on board and like rally and do something, like it just happens. Yeah, you know, in 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 the U.S. is you know for a lot of reasons the way government set up and states and you know all that stuff is it's it just makes it a lot more difficult. I don't know, man. Like when I talk to my mom, she's just like, "This is this sucks," but this isn't. This isn't the Korean War. This is this is sort of vacation. Wow, that's that's a that, yeah, that's a crazy perspective. I think there's like, um, I think that's right. There's a sort of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger thing that happens. But I, I think it cuts both ways. I, I spoke to Namaisan from Lefervescence the other day, and he was telling me. I mean, in Tokyo, they're sort of a few weeks behind. They haven't shut anything down. They're just sort of recommending people not go out. And he told me that. Friday night, when they sort of started shutting things down, they had 50% cancellations, all sort of like gaijin outsider tourist guests. But by Saturday afternoon, they were 100% booked up again by locals. And that local Tokyo people are just eating out. And they, they sort of like, they were scarred by the earthquake in 2011. They were scarred by any number of things. And there's a little bit of a mentality that like, we don't care. Like none of these things really killed us and we're just going to keep going. And, and it's a little bit troubling in this particular instance where, you know, he was saying, I, I, I think the right thing to do is close down, even though people are coming and I'm fully, fully committed for lunch and dinner every single night by locals. So yes, there's the confusion thing, but also it, it's, it seems to be cutting both ways here. Yeah. I don't, I don't have an answer. And, and let, let me just state whatever I just said about Confucian values I don't know if it'll get edited out, but like it could easily be one of the dumbest things I've ever said. Um, oh. You know, I feel like can one we, of those actors talking about like the, the environment or something like I'm the last person <laughs> in the world that should be talking about Confucian values. So please take that with a grain of salt or just laugh how stupid I am. But um, can we ask Corey to to talk a little bit about I mean, Chang and I spoke on on this podcast the other week about the the post you made on Instagram and um, kind of drawing attention to this problem 
um, not just in terms of the restaurants that are going to close and the people that work there and something that Chang alluded to, but the entire ecosystem um, that that restaurants are a part of and, and you know, what you meant when you posted um, what you did. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, <clears throat> you know, restaurants are part of this very large, you know, economy and this ecosystem of how businesses affect each other. But restaurants are, are kind of unique in our little hub in that that's where the final transaction happens, right? Like guests don't go out and um, sell their experience or sell what they had again. Whereas like until that moment, it, it's just a whole supply chain and a whole network that supports that hub, you know, from the farming to the, to the distributor to um, the person who delivers it to the people who make the equipment to prepare it, the people who maintain it. I mean, it, I mean, I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people that I work with. But the restaurant transaction that happens with the customer is the final sale that supports everything within our hub. Um, of course, that's tied to a larger network, but you know, for us, like that's where it ends. Um, and I think once we're hit, it's just going to flow down so fast. And it's, you know, it's happening already. It's, it's already happening. Um, but I think we're going to feel it first and then it's just going to trickle down. Um, and, and basically, disrupt this entire network that supports restaurants and 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 the, whatever product that the customer is buying. So, you know, I, it, once that gets disrupted, what it looks like when we get back, it's going to be very similar to kind of Chang's prediction of what restaurants will survive. You know, these huge distributors that work with, you know, these, these uh, you know, these products that we're probably not used to working with are the ones that are going to be best positioned to be able to operate fully when this thing's over. And, you know, that's, that's really unfortunate too. Like the small purveyors who find this like one little product and, and you buy one thing from them, like how are they, how are they going to survive? Um, you know, and, and, and what I was really talking about is we have to do our part to, to give them the best chance. Do I think a lot of them will be lost? Yeah, absolutely. But we can't add to that, you know, fatality rate um, by not doing what we need to do, which is we just pay them what we owe them for the products that they've already given us, you know, cause, and, and that's, what's amazing. A lot of people don't understand that. Like when you're a new restaurant, you're immediately given like a line of credit, which is pretty amazing. I think, you know, like that's what accounts payable is about. And, and so people have gotten this product that they owe, you know, I don't know too many restaurants that are operating on COD or anything like that. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe there are a few out there, but, um, so they've already invested the, uh, the amount of uh, time and money that it took to get that product to you, and they need payment for that. And if you don't pay them, it's just going to trickle down. Um, so that's kind of what I meant about that. Hmm. Yeah, you I know, mean, that's what it is. I mean, it, you know, it's not often that Dave's lost for words, but it's no, just, it's just, it's just it, one of those it, moments, it is, you know? A, a real moral dilemma. And, you know, it's something we've been talking about a lot, me and Chris, about this trolley car problem and something they teach in schools and such. But it's basically, you know, you have two decisions and basically each decision is a horrible outcome. And, and you have to make the decision of what's the lesser of two evils, ultimately. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it's been brutal, as you said, to be able to talk to our peers. And, you know, it's really just trauma. It's like... I, I, they realize every decision they make, someone loses. And it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, but for me, um, I'm currently at a place where I'm not really thinking about the industry right now. Uh, I think what you're talking about makes more sense is like, we need to worry about the next generation. We have a, 
a contract uh, to take care of the people that have provided us food as best we can simultaneously, like paying our, our cooks and, and, and give them as many, as long of benefits as possible. It's like our payroll every week is half a million dollars. That's like, I don't care how much money, like there's, we're just going to, we're going to run out of cash. And, and it's just like, fuck. And if we're in trouble, then I was like, oh my God, what happens with that mom and pop shop? You know, there's a Kamjatang spot in LA and they're like, we just opened up. I'm like, fuck, it breaks my heart. There's so many people that are in this business because it's the only thing they can do. And we take that away from them. So I think the only thing that I'm worried about right now isn't about restarting the restaurants. It's about putting cash back into the hands of the people that need it right now. That's the one thing that we can control. As you said, it's hard to predict what the future is going to be. There's just too many moving variables. It's hard. It's almost going to be impossible. Plus, it's not in our control. Yeah. The virus is in control of what happens. But we have an obligation to how we can take care. And it sucks that I can't take care of my team enough. Yeah. So I think the government, the government has to give us, government has to do a better job. You know, I think we're all in that position where uh, no matter what we do, it's just not going to be enough. Um, and, you know, really, like, what do you do? Because if, if, you, if you burn through all your cash paying, paying your staff for the next, I don't know, few months, and you don't reopen, it, it, that really helped them during that time. And, and I don't know the answer to that. You know, like, what is the right decision in, in a situation like this? What's the best for, what's the best for them? And I think part of it is to, is is to try to maintain some small chance of getting back and employing them. And in that process, I think you know there there are going to be a lot of casualties, and and that's and that's really you know tough to kind of stomach. But you know what 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 is the alternative? You know, commit to 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 having no chance of ever employing them again. Uh, and what does that look like? So I, you know, this is just one of those situations, like you said, like there's, there's, there's no um, choice that's going to make you feel good. <laughs> there's no decision that's, that you're going to walk away from and be like, yeah, that feels good making that decision. It's, it's, it's tough no matter what. Corey, can you tell us a little bit about your specific situation? Like what is your day-to-day like right now? You were, you were working on opening another spot. Um, you've got three in San Francisco, like what you know, how, what are your conversations with the teams and everything right now? How's how's everything going on in your personal uh, world and business here? Well, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's pretty depressing. I mean, you know, I mean, I think all the conversations that we're having uh, um, is, is is they're very difficult. You know, um, we closed uh, the the restaurant, the museum first, um, the museum. I decided to close, and um, that was before the shelter-in-place order, so that closed first. So that was the first conversation I had with staff. And, you know, I think we're going to look back on this and, and realize we made, you know, some wrong decisions, um, but there was no precedent for this. Do you decide to stay open and try to keep your staff working and, and employed and, and getting them paychecks, or do you close? And I think they're, they're, they're you know, it's a very complicated thing, and there's there's you know, public health involved, the safety of your employees involved. And then there's just financial viability, which also relates to, to health. Um, all those things are, are so complicated and, and interwoven that there's no really clear decision. And, and I made the decision 
to try to stay open at a loss. I mean, of course we're operating at a loss. It, it would have been more economical for us to just close right then and there. We closed uh, the, the restaurant, the museum first. Um, the museum decided to close and um, that was before the shelter in place order. So that closed first. So that was the first conversation I had with staff. And, you know, I think we're going to look back on this and, and realize we made, you know, some wrong decisions. Um, but there was no precedent for this. Do you decide to stay open and try to keep your staff working and, and employed and, and getting them paychecks or do you close? And I think there, there, there are, you know, it's a very complicated thing. And there's, there's, you know, public health involved, the safety of your employees involved. And then there's just financial viability, which also relates to, to health. Um, all those things are, are so complicated and, and interwoven that there's no really clear decision. And, and I made the decision to try to stay open at a loss. I mean, of course we're operating at a loss. It, it would have been more economical for us to just close right then and there, cut payroll. I mean, I think that's what most businesses would have done. Um, in the long, you know, when we look back on that, was that the right decision? I, I don't know yet. Um, and I'm not really sure, but that's the decision that, that we made. But in the case of the museum, they decided to close, so we had to close. So that was the first conversation I had with staff, and it was so difficult because I couldn't give them any answers. You know, for so long, I've been in charge of a kitchen or in charge of in running a business that it's not often that people come to me and ask me for something or ask me about something. I don't, I don't have the answer, you know? I make, I make hundreds of decisions a day, yeah. and I'm wrong on some of them, but I make a lot of decisions a day. And, and I realize that most of the time, even though I know I might be wrong, I'm okay making that decision. This is very different. You know, I have a lot of anxiety and uncertainty in, in the decisions that I made, but, you know, and, and I'm not sure, you know, what the right one, um, you know, will be or was for us. But that's, that's the path that we took. Um, the other restaurants closed when the shelter in place order came in from the city. Um, and I had a, you know, a similarly kind of heart, heartbreaking conversation with the staff. Um, we have a, a relatively young staff, so most of them don't have families. Um, and it struck me at how, how well they took some of this. I mean, you know, I'm not sure how I would have felt if I was, you know, their age, being a 23-year-old young cook, having moved to a new city to work in this restaurant and and, and all this was happening. And, and the chef I came to work for was telling me, you know, we're closing down and all this stuff is happening. I'm in a foreign country. I, I, just, I just don't know what my reaction would have been. But I was really um, surprised and in some ways just proud of how mature and, and, and understanding they were about that whole process. Um, you know, that's something that I don't think I'll ever forget. Can I ask if the choice ever crossed your mind or, or if, if you ever had to make a choice about pivoting to some sort of, I don't know, delivery or takeout or, or whatever and, and the thought process that you went through in making that decision? Yeah. So, um, you know, at first I really didn't know the, the magnitude of, 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 of the situation and what it will look like. I mean, we were finding new things every day. Right. Um, so, once we closed, my in, um, I just had to take some time to really start to think about what was going on. You know, I just needed that time. And um, and when this new shelter-in-place order came, which was extending it to May third, which is basically another month, you know, I realized we, we, if we have that resources and the opportunity to try something, you know, we have to at least consider it. I'm not sure if we're going to do it, but we have to at least consider it. We have to consider every single option that's out there. Yep. Um, and that's what we've been doing. So 
my day to day to answer your, you know, your original question was, it was trying to figure out if that's viable, if that's something that we should do, you know, what are the risks, what are the benefits and, and, and trying to put them on the scale and see what's best. And like you said, we, we were in the middle of working on a new restaurant opening, which is this Korean restaurant I've been working on and thinking about for years. And we were heavy in the R and D for that. And so what we've been playing around with uh, recently, and we had a, a long seven hour meeting about yesterday was, okay, why don't we continue this R and D process? And offer that as a takeout thing. And Korean meals, Korean food travels really well. Korean food has been through so many crises. I mean, it's, it's made an engineer for, for this kind of situation. And so my feeling is, okay, let's continue the R&D. Let's offer it as a preview to the public. I don't know if it's a preview for a restaurant, a preview for a delivery, a preview for whatever this, this restaurant looks like or whatever this, this offering is when all this is over. But how about we continue and do that? Um, and so that's what, um, we've been working the last couple of days and trying to figure out what that would look like. Um, so that's, that's, you know, that's kind of been my day to day. And then, like I said, cooking at home and, and just trying to put out fires and, and, and make really tough decisions every day, every day. What are you cooking at home? I mean, you mentioned <laughs> it's the first time you've ever cooked at home and I've said that too, right? Like uh, I never cooked at home really ever with a handful of t- times in my life. And uh, only recently, the past like 18 months, ever since my wife was pregnant, that I was like, oh my God, I have to make food at home. Yeah. And it's been very weird because I do it a lot now. How weird is it for you? Because can you explain why you've never cooked at home? Well, I mean, I guess early in my career, I didn't cook at home because I didn't have the space in, in an apartment to even try to cook. You know, it's just like survival, yeah. right? You know, I mean, I think when you're a young cook working in big cities, like, it's hard for you to even live in a place where you can cook properly. So that's probably why I didn't cook in my early years. And, and also you're so tired. I mean, you, you, I mean, you know, you work so much, especially back then that the last thing you're doing is, is, is cooking a meal at home. Um, it's just about surviving on your days off. And then I think later it was just cooking um, for me was synonymous with, with a, having a team there and executing that in a certain way. Um, and to remove myself from, from that environment, I was just a little bit uncomfortable and it, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't as enjoyable as it was cooking in a professional kitchen. But now that I've been, I've been forced to do it, you know, I, I managed to find joy in that process, which, um, I don't think I would have ever found if, if I had the option not to. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of true for a lot of situations, you know, and that's why I do believe that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, when this, this, you know, on the other side of this, we're gonna, we're, we are gonna still have um, the creative creativity that's so much part of our industry to 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 adapt a little bit and make it better from you know how it started. Um, but yeah, I've been cooking a lot at home. You know, I've been, I, I mean, but I'm, like, what are you making? I'm, I'm yeah, so I mean, curious. That's the that's the that's the beautiful <laughs> answer, Corey. But like, we want to know what you are cooking, please. <laughs> we're desperate. And I, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to sound boastful, but the food's been pretty good in my house, to be honest with you. <laughs> Come on, just tell us what you made last. Tell us the last thing you made. Uh, this is not a good reflection of like the meals we've been having. But but yesterday, I I, I made hot dogs yesterday, right? But <laughs> this was, this was, first of all, I got some really good, uh, you know, really good sausages. Um, and then uh, I, I cooked it on my charcoal grill. And I cooked it to the right point that a hot dog should be cooked, which is that moment before the skin explodes. Because then you have this textural element, and that's, the, that's what's so great about hot dogs. 
And it's so bad when there's a hot dog sitting around in a, ba- in a water bath or on the side of a barbecue is because it's already exploded a little bit and it started to lose its juices. And sometimes if it's not hot enough, it hasn't expanded to its full capacity. So you got to eat it at that moment where you bite into it and you have that textural pop, you know? And, and there's a lot of textures like that out there, but when you have that, it's really good. And then, uh, and then I made some uh, homemade French fries um, and, uh, and those were pretty damn good too, you know? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh my God. I can't tell you like how it, among all this, like it makes me so happy, uh, to, to hear you two talking about food. Like th- this is just like one of the great joys of, uh, in the middle of all this stuff. Just like hearing Corey Lee talk about what, 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 uh, what oil did you fry in? it? Oh, uh, I, I just, fr- I fried it in the rice oil, but, but here's, wow. but here's the Whoa. thing, but here's the thing about, uh, about about fries is that I realized as I was making it, it would be almost impossible to try to replicate that in a restaurant setting because the volume that you're talking about, right? You know, so yeah, that's that was kind of an interesting th- thing too because usually when you're a professional chef and you're at home, you compromise because you're at home. This was this was like something like, huh? Like I can't do this in a restaurant. So that was kind of mm. an interesting feeling to to do something at home. And then realize, wow! If I ever did this in a restaurant, I have to compromise that technique. So uh, it's just been, you know, you think you have time to think about that kind of stupid shit right now because, like, you, know, <laughs> you need some distractions, you know. But I made, I made, I made a pho, which was really good. I made a yakitori. I, I mean, I mean, it was. Whoa, 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 whoa! Damn, so what, talk about the talk about the pho. What 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 part of Vietnam pho? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what part, you know. It's, it, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about the pho. I, I, didn't, I, didn't get out, I didn't get out a book in, in Charlotte, Canada, but it was a combination of a chicken and beef broth um, flavored with uh, an, 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 an anchovy essence and a, and, a, and a little bit of fish sauce. Um, and then uh, we used um, uh, beef, beef chuck thinly sliced and tripe and then uh, lime, bean sprouts, you know, kind of the usual garnishes, um, and you know, it was it was so good. I'm dying over here. I think I can operate a pretty good for a restaurant right now. I, it was really good, but you know, like I, I found, you know, I found, you know, some joy in cooking at home that I didn't think was really possible. Um, so that's been kind of that's been kind of uh, you know a very positive thing to to experience. One, one of the very few positive things. You know, to experience during this time, and you know, Dave's been posting a lot on 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 his Instagram, and like, you know, I've been seeing the food that he's been making. And I, I mean, I'm, I know that he's never cooked this much at home, but never. I bet I bet Dave's <laughs> going through the same process. I mean, I know he is. Like, he's discovering these little yeah. things, right? I mean, you're looking at food like, in a different oh, ways. It's like I I can just reverse engineer and just screw around and do the dumbest things. I'm mean, like, oh, you know, it's 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 been fun, but also like. I know you're working with way better ingredients than I have right now. And that's really pissing me off because uh, I feel like <laughs> I feel very, um, very uh, limited with, with what I have. I would, I, I have nothing basically. <laughs> that's right. I don't even have chopsticks. It's driving me crazy, man. You don't have chopsticks. What do you, what do you mean? I'm staying at a friend's place. You know, we had Hugo's Dole. And I had all these relatives here and they got stuck and I've been, I've had to like take care of so many Korean adults. It's been insane. But what kind of house doesn't have chopsticks? I mean, that's like. We're not white, we're at a, we're a white, white, white person house. Uh, I, and I have, ca- have Califon uh, cookware. 
that have uh, that uh, I, I've already just destroyed, and um, it's like William Sonoma threw up in here, and there's. <laughs> There's just nothing that works or is useful, and it's really frustrating. So, Dave, what's the best thing that you've cooked since uh, you've been staying at home and, and, and cooking? Ooh, good question. Um, I made uh, mapu tofu actually yesterday, um, but I didn't have tofu, so <laughs> it was just like I just made that. I just made the mapu sauce, and mapu I made tofu. it with not, is like, that, is that, is that northern or southern Sichuan? <laughs> <laughs> what a dick. Um, Now's not the time for snobbery, Dave. No, no, I know. I was just, whatever I can fucking give it to you, I'm going to try. Um, but that, that was like, I was like, man, because what happened was I, I, I went on Amazon and I got some, you know, green and I got like, I can't remember the other Sichuan peppercorn I got, but I was like, yeah, I have nothing else to work with. And somehow I scrounged together stuff. And I made something delicious literally out of nothing. And I was like, man, I actually think this is, I made it with beef because I didn't have pork. And I was like, man, this is pretty damn good. And we just ate it on rice. And I was like, this is as good as anything else. And of course, what I, I've actually been thinking, I was like, shit, I just, I should just, I should just start making my own tofu. (laughs) And I, you know, I bought a 50 pound bag of flour because I'm just going to start doing everything from scratch again because there's no other options where I'm at. So, um, oh man, you you got to see this thing. Can you hold it? Can you hold on one second? <laughs> oh my god, I'm so excited. He's gotten up from his chair to go retrieve something. <laughs> it's fun no. talking to him, man. <laughs> it's it's so much fun. This guy is honestly, uh, especially like end of the world. Corey has really just like let let go. <laughs> I also think that Corey's hair right now is the perfect length. We were giving him a lot of shit about his so long check, hair. Check this, this shit out. Perfect length. Oh. This is my Mapo Tofu kit, right? Oh, wow. Oh, what? It's a, this is a deli. So you can steam this tofu. So I made the tofu from scratch. I steamed it right in this deli and then put the ragu on top and I have them delied up in the fridge. So all I have to do now is actually microwave it and then stir it to bake the tofu <laughs> and have rice ready. And it's, and it's great. And honestly, fuck, like, fuck if you, I were to place this in a restaurant, <laughs> this is how I would do it now. If I opened a Szechuan restaurant today, like, this is how I would mise-en-place my mapo tofu. I mean, it's so, so efficient. You, you already have the soybeans. Like, I have to get everything. I got to figure out. I have no nothing to cook with. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> But to, to paint a picture, to paint a picture for for any listeners, uh, a deli container is basically a a pint sized plastic container that he has layered with homemade tofu and then basically like a mapo ragu on top, right? Like it's, the, the, the it's pretty sauce. brilliant. But listen, if you just saw that, and if you're not in the business, it's like one of those things where you're like. Ninety nine percent nine percent of the world probably wouldn't would see this and be like, I don't what what's what's the big deal? But if you're in the business, you're like, fuck, that's really goddamn smart. <laughs> <laughs> it was it, yeah. I, it doesn't even if you saw it, it doesn't mean much. But like, I, I think if you understand what he just sandbagged right there, it's pretty. So uh, when'd you make when'd you make the tofu? So this was about uh, two days ago, but I mean it's super easy because like you know you put a you put a. It's basically you're creating a, a steamer already. Yeah, right? I, yeah, I know. I know how to do it. I'm just saying, like, where did you get the soybeans and how did you do all this? Where'd you, no, no, no. I used, you get the I, used, I used soy milk. I used soy milk. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't actually, like, you know, make the soy what milk. You, you, what you use to coagulate? What you use to yeah, it? Yeah, a combination of a couple of different things. But, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little don't fucking worry about it. That's what he used. 
No, but you know what? This is this is what. Okay, I'll, I mean, let's talk about because like maybe I'll never make this thing again. So like you know, w- one thing about this tofu. That, so I've, I've I've made tofu um, over the years because like it's one of my favorite things, but the texture was never really like that. Just how I like it, you know. When you when you buy some tofu from the store, like industrial tofu, it doesn't have that silkiness. Um, it's a, if you make firm tofu, that's one thing. But if you make silken tofu, and I, I was never able to achieve the silkiness that I want, or like you would get some kind of mix, and like it'd be very bitter, um, just from the amount of salts and and and, and uh, coagulants that they're using. But I found that a really small percentage, like 0.1 percent, of transglutaminase binds to proteins in a way that's amazing. And it's a different kind of binding than coagulants do. So, so you know the way the way uh, coagulants do is they, they they react with with the proteins and and it sets just kind of like meat, right? But um, when you cook a piece of meat, but when you add transglutaminase, it's it's binding in a different way than just the salts and heat, and that gives a silkiness and a cohesiveness and a homogeneous like homogeneity to the tofu that has an amazing texture. Um, so that's what this is. I'm so mad that I don't have meat glue. I don't even have anything to like <laughs> hydrate anything. I have nothing. And you probably have a gem scale and all this other shit. And I'm so jealous right now that I have nothing. It makes me so mad. And uh, I, I mean, Wiley, Wiley made that dish or like a meat glue tofu like years ago. And it was that texture. You're right. is so, it's like, it's very different. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that you have that at home, like, Fuck, man! I'm so mad. <laughs> I, I think that um, hearing you guys talk right now, like the last time the three of us were together, I think was almost <laughs> a year ago, and we were at a restaurant in Chicago, just <laughs> drinking and eating. And I think Chang and I were maybe ganging up on Corey a little bit, but we were just like shooting the shit and giving each other so much grief, arguing about parts of the restaurant business that were that that today seems so meaningless as we're can, facing can I, this can, sort of can like, I can I talk about something that's totally meaningless Corey <laughs> but I, I, ever- I just like just to, just to finish that thought like I I, I miss like I, I we're not even at a restaurant and like I've never missed yeah. restaurants more than right now just like being with you guys oh, no. talking about meaningless shit getting drunk and, and eating food together yeah <laughs> that night was funny and almost always when I'm hanging out with Corey it's funny have have you ever won the? Did you win the Beard Award? Did you finally win the Best Chef California? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Did. <laughs> yeah, I, I won. I, I won that uh, two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Two years ago, but like, how many years were you nominated? I must have been nominated like like five times. That's what Wait, I'm trying just, to say. It's like you know how crazy <laughs> that is that you had to be nominated five times to win. Like, what no, the fuck I mean, is I, mean <laughs> I mean, those. I mean, awards. You just gotta be. You gotta be. You know, happy when it goes your way. I mean, that's the only yeah. way to look at it. I mean, you know that. Just for context, so it doesn't seem like Chang is just picking on you. No, no, <laughs> He's I'm not bringing picking this up on him because, at all. because we were having this, this, this dinner was after the James Beard Awards. Yeah. <laughs> I think that most people <laughs> think that we just brought it up just, to hurt his feelings. <laughs> just to provide some context, Dave was there, <laughs> I was there, and Josh Keynes were there. And between, <laughs> between the three of us, we had lost like, like seven different nominations. <laughs> There wasn't a single winner at the table. No, no. Yeah, we weren't even really giving Corey shit. Chang was giving Josh Skeen's shit because I think he was the first chef in history to lose three beard awards in one night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. But, you know, I mean, I mean, if we're talking about award, I mean, it's kind of a silly thing to talk about right now. But, I mean, what the hell? So, 
Like how many how many awards have you? How many James Beard awards have you won, Dave? <laughs> so it's yeah, a, 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 yeah, it's st- stupid. All of them. They have no, to invent like, new like, ones. Like how many? Like let's say what six. Okay, I've won six. 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 So like, yeah. which one was the most meaningful to you? Most meaningful was best new restaurant because it was a group, and I I always looked at the Beard Awards as a group thing, and. You know, the weird thing is, and the reason why I was giving you not shit, it's just like, you know, I can tell you this because I love you and you're a friend of mine and I respect you well before we were in friends. I was like, man, like when I say you represent the very best of this business, I mean that. Even though what you're cooking at home, I'm like, fuck, man, I gotta, I gotta get my shit together. <laughs> and I think that's, that's what you've always done is sort of set the pace and the tempo on, and doing it your way. And I always laughed and I was like, how have you not, you know, this is why I think the awards, while they're great, have their limitations because it's like, you are the best of the best, you know? And I think you know that and I want you to know that. And that's why I was like, always laughing. I was like, how the fuck are you not winning everything? <laughs> you know, it's so stupid. And 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 that's all. It's like, I, I'm lucky and you're good. Well, no, no, that's, I mean, you know, that's not true, but at the same time, like, I think that our industry is a lot bigger than um, maybe our immediate circle of restaurants that you know we interact with frequently, or the immediate circle of chefs. And 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 you know as 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 well as anyone that like operating many large volume restaurants that in itself is a is a different kind of skill too. So you know I don't I don't necessarily think that it's surprising that a restaurant um, you know like Benu or a chef like me who who cooks for only like fifty people a night. Um, we'll lose to a, a restaurant that serves hundreds and hundreds of people a, a day and, and reach like, you know, hundreds of thousands of diners uh, annually that we just can't compare ourselves to. So I don't think it's entirely, you know, crazy. But it also just shows you the sort of stupidity of awards in general, particularly related to food. I mean, you know, I, I won the first, the first James Beard award I won was a Rising Star Chef, right? And uh, I remember that I was there at the old Marriott Marquis. That was the best version. Yeah. And you know what? Like I had that year, I realized like, man, these awards are are bullshit (laughs) because like, (laughs) I mean, because really like, how is it possible that like the public has any idea of like the work I'm doing? You know, I mean, I wanted as the chef de cuisine of the French Laundry. Yes, of course, everyone knows the French Laundry and all that. But like in terms of being able to vote for me, like as a chef, as an individual, like, How's that possible? So, like, you know, as I was, as as you know, as I was kind of, you know, accepting that award, I real I also had this realization that, wow, this kind of institution that I like looked up to and and helped me calibrate like who was doing good work, like that's questionable too, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the only award that I've ever really wanted to win, and I'm being 100 percent honest. So, as a restaurant or as an individual, um, we have three beard awards, but like the only one I've ever wanted to win was Best New Restaurant. And we were nominated twice, once for Bennu and once for Institute, and, and we lost both. So, I mean, that's just how awards go, you know? I mean, I think Best New Restaurant is actually the hardest one to win because you only have one crack at it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, I am um, 100% getting kicked off this James Beard Award Committee <laughs> this podcast. 100% I'm getting kicked off this thing, guys. So we're going to have to edit this, some of this shit out. <laughs> no, we're leaving it in because these are the things we have to talk about because it makes us think about what's actually important. 
And I'm not saying the Beard Award isn't important, but it's like, what's actually important moving forward? No, I think I think for me, one thing is, you know, what what I've realized is actually important is is making sure, uh, you know, you really mean what you say, and you know, if this is how you feel about words, like, this is how it is. I have no problem voicing my opinion. You know, like, there's 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 too many crazy things happening right now to worry too much about, you know, hurting so you know, like not being sensitive to some kind of award or or worrying about the politics of of being a chef in in, in America. Uh, I just don't think that's the priority right now. And and if there's one thing that this crisis has has made me realize that that stuff's not important at all. Exactly. Which is why I want to talk about it because we can have a different angle and be like, wow, I can't believe we gave so much time and effort to something that is like totally frivolous. And again, I'm not trying to say it's frivolous. Please take that in a different way because there's a lot of people that work at the Beard House and all these things. But I'm simply saying like our priorities have to change moving forward, you know, in terms of the future that we want to build and we will rebuild, you know, what are we going to, what are we going to want to teach our cooks about, you know, the value of cooking? What kind of feeling do we want our guests to like have again? And again, that's something I'm, I'm ruminating on quite a bit. It's, it's, a, it's that, you know, I, I said it, it's like, I just want to give people like a bowl of love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of things that kind of last, um, you know, from this experience. And there's kind of like, like the obvious, very visible stuff, right? Like, uh, you know, we were talking about SARS, for example. And when you, when you eat in Hong Kong, it's almost like pretty standard that if there's a shared dish, you're going to have a second set of chopsticks or something, right? But that, that was... That was that didn't exist before SARS, you know. Mm-hmm. If you go eat around Hong Kong now and you're dining somewhere, you just think that's a part of like Chinese culture. But no, that wasn't there before. And so we're going to have things like that that um, didn't exist in our restaurants before. But you know, in a, in a, in a few years, we're just going to be so used to to those things that they're going to be kind of um, second nature to us. Uh, so we'll, we'll have those things that remind us of what happened. But you know, the kind of changes that I hope will happen are, are kind of you know, at an industry level where restaurants are such fragile businesses and something needs to change there, you know, and yeah. it was already fragile and this just kind of exposed our vulnerability. And I really think that it was due for a fall, maybe in a different way, but it was due for a fall because there were just too many restaurants that they couldn't sustain a healthy business, you know, and, and they were saying like, if Momofuku is, is struggling through this, what happens to that mom and pop's, you know, restaurant? Um, and it just exposes kind of the vulnerability, even at the very top of our industry. Um, I don't think there's a chef out there right now, if you're in America, who's not just scared shitless of like what's going to happen in the next few weeks. And if you're not scared, then you're you're ignorant, because this is something that's going to completely change our world um, as chefs and and as restaurant operators. You know, your parents are right, Corey. Our parents are right. We should have done better in school. <laughs> they're they're always right. These fucking tiger parents are always right. Fuck. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um should we let Corey go here, Chang? Yeah. I mean, what else is he gonna do though? I mean make, <laughs> I mean I can just go grab my dinner and have is dinner with you do guys. That, I don't like, know. Like work on his hand pulled noodle skills. <laughs> He's going to leave right now and be like, hey, I'm working on this right now. Now I got a great new recipe. He 100% is, man. He 100% is. Yeah, Chris, where are you? I'm up in, I was in SF yesterday. Yeah. Um, I had that baby, so we had to take him to the doctor, but I'm uh, 
I'm at my in-laws house in Sonoma right now. So, you know, I mean, Dave and I talked a lot about like what it's like for chefs being stuck at home and having to cook and and yeah, it's it's very different, but we're we're managing to find some some joy in it. For someone who who's not a chef, is it just like completely miserable? Like is your food just terrible right now or what's going on there? <laughs> First of all, no. I mean, I cook dinner every night for the family anyway, so it's like it's not new to me. I <laughs> I uh I had already started subscribing to the Dave Chang School of Home Cookery uh <laughs> pretty recently, so like a lot of my stuff is influenced by this guy to like an annoying degree. Like I wouldn't even really admit to him how much my home cooking is influenced by this ding dong. <laughs> um but uh I mean Chris is no, not I mean obviously Chris is not, you know, a good example of of the the average layperson cooking at home trying to navigate their way through a kitchen in this time, but you know, it, it, after months of this, do you think that like people will, what is their view on food? Like, is it going to make it worse? Like when they, when it comes time to recalibrate what people's standard is for good food, is this experience going to leave them with, you know, what, what's that going to look like? Um, that's yeah, kind of that's that's interesting too, because if you have absolutely no cooking abilities, what, what are you eating at home right now if you're used to having good food dining out? I mean, more than more in New York than than California, probably, you know, where or like these big cities where, you know, real estate is so tight and apartments are so small. I think there are people who just, you know, who aren't chefs who have literally not cooked for the last 20 years. And this is a this is a crazy awakening, I'm sure for a certain sect of people. They're just like loving life. They're like, oh, all these crazy restaurants are doing takeout and delivery and fancy things now. But I mean, Chang's been talking about it a lot. I think this is going to drive a lot of people to have to cook at home, and it's gonna it's gonna reshape how people gather together and eat and 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 face these things that they haven't had to do um, for a long, long time, or they just need Domino's every day. Yeah, but do you think that at the end of the day, like this experience will will leave us with a greater appreciation of food and restaurants and and cooking, or do you think that it'll, it'll result in people reprioritizing what's important, and saying yeah? Good food is not that important. I just want to stay healthy and safe. Depends where you are, I think, right? Like, I think there's a, there's going to be a certain sect of people who are going to rush back to restaurants who have been waiting. And, um, you know, the same people who didn't want to go under quarantine to begin with. But uh, I don't know. I, I think that it's going to have a really, really profound impact for a while. But, uh, you know, for better and worse, our memories are short. You know, think about SARS again. Think about how intense SARS was in Asia and, and even here and how quickly we gave up on worrying about sort of pandemic response as soon as it was over. You know, I, I think memories are, like I said, for better and worse, we tend to repeat our mistakes, but we also tend to be pretty resilient in um, getting back to business as usual as soon as it's safe, you know, so I don't know. I agree. I don't know. I agree with that. I agree with that, Chris, but I also think that both of those things that you mentioned, Corey, are going to happen. People are going to realize that maybe I don't need to go to restaurants and you're definitely going to have people to be like, I cannot wait to have, you know, a foie gras torchon or something like that. Cause I haven't <laughs> had that in two years. Um, and you know, when I was thinking, I was like, that's going to be great. And I'm, I'm being way more appreciative of, of all of these moments that I took for granted. Right. Even talking about, I was thinking about a Loba Foie today, literally. I was like, man, when am I ever going to work with the Loba Foie again? Like, how cool is that going to be? Cause that was sort of my benchmark. Cause like, 
I always wanted to know what that was like. And then it got to a point where I was like, oh, like, got to clean another lobe of foie. Now I'm like, that would be amazing. I would be so happy to, to work with beautiful product like that again and turn it into something. And that's exciting to me. And I think for me, I'm not going to take for granted, I hope, all the beautiful things that are going to come our way again in the future. So uh, I do think that there's positives to come out of this. Well said. Um, what are you going to eat for dinner tonight? I think I'm going to have mapo tofu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys, I got to go, man. It's like, I didn't realize we're going to be on here for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm way behind now. All right. <laughs> I think I can microwave this here. thing. Well, that was our conversation with Corey Lee, the great chef of Bennu. We will continue to badger him to come on our podcast and join us for hopefully conversations that are not related to Too Small to Fail. If you are interested in telling your story, join us on our podcast, the series Too Small to Fail. Send us an email at askdave at majordomomedia.com. That is the best way to contact us, askdave at majordomomedia.com. We have some chefs lined up already. It's important to tell these stories. And it's not just going to be American chefs. It's going to be chefs from a global level because this is happening everywhere. Man, excited to be able to give Corey a big hug and taste his food when this is all over. I cannot wait. And uh, I'm really savoring these moments of talking to my friends and seeing what they're up to because it's given me life. So I love you, Corey. Thank you, Chris Ying, for always helping out. Uh, we will get you a new podcast this week in addition to this one. And uh, appreciate the patience, guys, as we figure this all out. And uh, just want to give a special shout out. Rest in peace, Matt Giblin, our cook that passed away at Las Vegas recently. And um, we're going to do everything in our power to look after your family, Matt. And um, be safe, everybody. It's going to get better. And we're going to get through this. Bye.